Good evening. This is Maddie Robinson, and you are tuned in to yet another episode of CJSW's monthly writing podcast, Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 9 p.m. on CJSW 90.9 FM. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective. Some of the things we like to feature in our episodes include poetry and fiction readings, inspiring interviews, and other fun literary segments. Without further ado, let's get started. Tonight's episode, we have an interview with the owner of Shed Books, Kevin Stebner, a short fiction story by Carla Corman, followed up by an interview with Tessa McWatt. Keep that dial locked to 90.9 FM, and without further ado, let's get started. Hi everybody, this is Maddie Robinson interviewing Kevin Stebner, owner of Shed Books. Hi Kevin, it's so nice to have you. Let's get started. I thought I'd ask you a couple quick questions about your business just to introduce yourself. Um, I personally discovered your bookstore back in 2019, I think it was, when I attended a zine party at the Calgary Public Library. And there's a little there's a little shop set up, I think, and it was probably you that I talked to. Um, I don't remember what I bought, but I, I thought it'd be interesting to interview and come back and ask. I thought it was really cool that you made your own bookstore all by yourself. And I was wondering if you'd like to tell CGSW why you decided to do this. Yeah, like, well, I used to manage a bookstore uh, a little while back. And when that bookstore shut down, uh, I really missed dealing with books all the time. I missed digging. I missed getting first pick of everything. I missed like being able to pass on recommendations. So I just kind of, as I kept going, I just always just amass books. Wherever I find a good book, I just like, oh, I can pass this on to someone. And so I just kind of started amassing books and I started having boxes that I couldn't store inside. So they would, I would literally just wrote shed books on the box and then just like left them in the shed. And then so my husband <laughs> kind of was like, why don't you just open those up as a shop? And uh, I eventually did. So it kind of just started from loving books and amassing a lot of books and then wanting to have a means to get them to people too. That's great. Um, did you ever find working in bookstores that you had any like book regulars? Like they'd come in like every month for like the same kind of books or was it always just like you couldn't recognize people because there were too many people? <laughs> Oh, no, no. It was people, even week, people, weekly people that would come in once a week and f bring back their stack and flip it for more stuff. So, uh, no, oh, we definitely had regulars, especially kind of when you're in like a downtown neighborhood, you end up having like very localized people. I think that's one of the problems not having like neighborhood used bookstores anymore is that like that aspect of kind of the camaraderie and community aspect of bookstores has kind of been lost a little bit. So that was kind of one of the goals for this too. That's a really great goal. Honestly, I live, I live in the same area kind of as your bookstore, I think, although I will admit I haven't visited it yet. <laughs> it's kind of a fun little secret, secret kind of thing. I got to come by sometime. I really do. Um, but I do, I do admire that because I know that I always try to hit up like a local bookstore rather than one that's a big chain or something, just because there's always way more charm to it. I find for sure. So I understand that your your store is kind of described as specializing in curated and curious lit. Would you say that you have more of an interesting selection than something like Indigo or Chapters? Or do you kind of pick them yourself? Or do you have random people just drop them off for you? Is it a mix of everything? <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely, I, I buy collections or thrift things or wherever I can find a good book. And just from doing it and being a book snob myself, I sort of 
like that's where that knowledge has come from. So I definitely have a kind of more literature focused kind of stuff. So there's lots of uh, novels, poetry, graphic novels, more of that kind of stuff. But yeah, the, the idea is that just from doing this so long that I've had the knowledge and the passion for it to like want to put cool books into people's hands. So yeah, it's definitely a, there's like a little level of snobbiness to it, but I think that kind of just comes from uh, the passion behind it for wanting to just like put something good in someone's hand. I understand that you studied English as well. And I, I also studied English for a while. So that, that definitely helps with your taste, even though I know English is kind of snobby. But to be honest, you, you find more unique reads than you would otherwise, like knowing other people. Yeah. Well, I mean, like that snobbiness aside, it's like having an, a degree, like an English degree, you know, like it equips you to be a better reader, obviously as a better writer, but it actually equips you to be a better reader as well. And so I think that that's like, that may be interpreted as snobbishness, but it's kind of, it's just like, oh, I've been schooled in a skill set that uh, might be underappreciated. You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of ties in together, I think. I, I totally agree. I kind of think that snobbery is just being really, really excited about something in fancy clothing, you know? <laughs> um, or in a pretentious way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. It, there's always like a, a passion underneath. Speaking of, so what are you reading right now or what are you excited to read? Oh, man. I'm reading this book about uh, minimalist literature called uh, Absence of Clutter, which I'm really into right now. Um, I'm reading the new Lauren Bennett novel, which isn't that as good as HHHH. That one was fantastic. So the new one's kind of whatever. Um, <laughs> I just finished Warren Ellis's uh, Nina Simone's Gum, which is like, I'm a big Dirty Three fan. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of a book about like being a musician and being like obsessed with artists and kind of, so that one was really good. Uh, I don't know. Here's this is the, over here. I don't know. Obviously, this is uh, being recorded, but this is my <laughs> bookshelf. My like that row right there is my my recent reads. I've been going through Kobo Abe's work, kind of the uh, Japanese surrealist, kind of the oh, thing that Haruki um, Murakami ripped off. So I I I Kobo Abe's great. Yes. Is there one about mushrooms? I'm trying to think. I think, sorry, I'm closing my eyes trying to remember. Well, yeah, <laughs> Kangaroo's Notebook is like a guy that has mushrooms growing on his legs. Yeah, my mental library is just as cluttered as my, my real one, as you can probably see. So sometimes people mention a writer and I'm like, ooh, I remember this. <laughs> I know this yeah. person. Where do I know this person from? <laughs> and uh, and even just from this last year, I've been gotten really immersed into uh, concrete poetry. And so just kind of trying to up my knowledge and chops for the technique, like the, the history of like visual poetics and concrete poetics. So that's kind of where I've been delving into a lot lately. So there's been a lot of, actually even the last little while, there's been a lot of uh, recent collections specifically about like women in concrete poetry kind of two came out this last year. It was pretty cool. So just uh, trying to up my concrete poetry knowledge. That is actually really interesting. I, I do find concrete poetry so I guess so creative because it's never something that I think of because I'm more of a prose person. So I'm always really impressed by it. I was actually going to ask you about concrete poetry as well because I understand that you do a lot of that. Um, so what brought you into that, working with typewriter art and th this kind of thing? What what kind of appealed to you about this? Was it the style? Was it just that you could do it yourself? Was it that it was something kind of new and different? <laughs> yeah, all of the above. Um, <laughs> I, it kind of was largely born out of the pandemic itself. A friend of mine, like right before the pandemic dropped, he like gifted me a typewriter. He he found like he found one like a 
that was being thrown away and he like brought it over. He's like, Hey, I think you'd want, you'd want this. And then, then the pandemic happened and we were sort of like left with a lot of time on our hands to just like try to fill. So I wrote a novel in that time. Uh, and then when <laughs> I finished that, I started doing all the typewriter work as well. So oh, that's um, great. it sort of came out of really just having a lot of time and trying to trying to figure out how do I use this machine, this typewriter to in an artistic way and use it to not just try to like write, use it as like a writing tool, but use it as a visual creative tool as well. And so that's kind of the, like what brought me to it was sort of the time, but then um, even just locally, we actually have like an incredible scene for it. There's like a lot of, yes. especially notable people in Canada or kind of come from this area. So just like my friend, Derek Beaulieu, who's kind of a notable name for that. He really encouraged me to do it. And he's published a lot of the things I was putting out. So that went a long way too, with that kind of help and encouragement from uh, local presses, and, uh, like Blasted Tree, for instance. Yes, we did uh, an interview with doing, uh, Kyle Flemmer. Putting out a lot of great stuff. Yep, yep, yeah. I remember that. So it was great. Yeah, so out, cool. Yeah, so he's put out a couple of my things and Derek has, and it's uh, it's just interesting to see how, like, even though it's a very niche uh, vein of writing to do it's it's interesting how Canada and even like Calgary in particular has quite a lot of notable work and names coming out from this area so it's a very it's a, it's kind of a rarity to be honest because not even a lot of it really goes down in the states it's like kind of Canada and Europe is kind of the hot spots at the moment so that is really interesting. It, yeah, it's funny because I, <laughs> I've interviewed a couple of kind of poets and visual poets, and I realize it's kind of tricky for an audience to understand. But if you go to your website, which is kevinstebner.com, you can check out some of the typewriter poetry. And it's, it's much more interesting to look at than for me to try and describe it. So I'll let <laughs> the audience look it up. Um, I'm looking at Time's End, which is kind of like a, a typewriter volcano done in, in blue and green. It's, it's really fascinating and, and, and very almost, um, it's like a cool piece that you could put on your wall or something. It's, it's really quite cool. Yeah, Canada is a really interesting hub for this because you are right. There's a lot of visual poetry that goes on in this. Even in this city, you are correct, which I think is always so interesting how you kind of get your own like little literary niches going on. Um, I know you also mentioned earlier that you're reading about kind of someone that was connecting music with writing and music with literature. Um, I know that you do have a background in music, too. Do you find that kind of changes the way you look at literature? Does that change your writing technique? Um, you know, honestly, it's like I kind of view them all in the same way. Like instead of just being like, I am this type of artist, like I'm just simply a writer. I'm just simply a musician. I'm just simply whatever. Like I don't. I don't, I don't think, I think limiting yourself to just those avenues is, is like debilitating as an artist. So as like an artist, so you want to, I feel it's a kind of important to touch on all aspects. So like by being a writer that helps you with uh, writing song lyrics and like being a lyricist helps you actually like understand how you want to compose a piece visually. And so like having all those different elements, they kind of tie into each other and sort of, I, I'm kind of a firm believer in inspiration like you know striking when inspiration hits like I know a lot of people are like process people and I, I'm not that way I'm definitely <laughs> an inspiration person yeah, yeah me neither <laughs> when it's just like, and that's kind of I think that's important having these different avenues so when you're kind of exhausted in one like I don't have any idea for a poem today oh but I've got an idea for a song or I've got an idea to do like a visual piece and so having those different avenues actually helps creatively instead of just being 
limited to like the one avenue that you know, I think it's very important to try to put your fingers in a lot of pies because they then they inform each other and then finishing one gives inspiration to another. Oh, I, I totally agree. I, it's funny how your your brain will kind of untangle things if you do something else that's creative, but not quite the same type of creating. Like if you do something visual or if you do something musical or you play an instrument sometimes or bake or even something, it can it can really help free up your brain if you're kind of stuck. So I totally, I totally get that. I was also going to swing back just because you're mentioning so many things. So you do have a novel that is upcoming for this year that's going to be put out. Would you like to talk about that at all? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's getting put out, so oh. <laughs> I've been I've been shopping it. So I I don't I don't even know how I can really speak to that. So just even you know finishing a novel and trying to find a home for it is just like this whole process that I'm uh, trying to navigate at the moment. So we'll see, I guess. Ooh. But it's yeah, it's just it's interesting to see how the process of putting out an album or kind of doing another things like they're similar but just kind of realizing how different especially for long form fiction like how difficult it is to put a book out like there's a lot of like a major level of gatekeeping whereas with like even like poetry it, i would say it's much easier to get a book of poetry out than it is to get a novel out just from someone from someone who's done both i guess interesting or is well attempting both i have to ask then what why do you think that is do you think it's because uh, poetry is I guess in some ways easier to flip through or it's just usually like less like literal word content, not always, I suppose. Or like, I, I'm just curious about this. Why, why do you think that is? Like, I, I don't know if I really have the answer to that. I've just something that I've been like recognizing and trying to do it. Cause I mean, like even to, to publish with, you know, a major press, like you effectively need to have a manager. Like you need to have a agent soliciting for you. You right. can't do it independently or like, poetics it's like a little they're a little more open to that so it's just kind of like this level of gatekeeping that I think well I mean you're asking like what the reason is I think it's just like it's monetary <laughs> like it's yeah it's straight up having a like monopolies controlling things and so they're only going to look at something that's a sure thing and so if, if you're doing something weird or they, they're not going to like they're taking chances on sure things they're not taking chances on unknown entities or new writers or those kind of things. So I don't know, but nevertheless, I'm, you know, you try to, you've created something that you think is good work and you want to put it into the world. And so you just, you know, send it out to the world with hopes and wishes. Yeah. They, they take a yeah. chance that isn't really a chance. They're, they're kind of <laughs> betting low, I think, but it, it's interesting though. Well, if it, um, if it ever comes out, please tell me, cause I'm excited. <laughs> uh, it's in the slush pile all over the place. Okay, I, I did want to ask one more question. This is more of a personal nerdy question, but I, I have a thing for uh, pixel art and kind of like 8-bit tunes. And I noticed that you seem to like maybe dabble a bit in that. So I was wondering, especially connecting this to typewriter poetry and things like this, I know people talk about romanticism with nature and trees and the flowers, and they talk about nostalgia. Do you, do you think we have almost like a technology nostalgia going on? Tech tech nostalgia or something I don't know how to make that a word because I feel like there's almost a, a nostalgia for for video games but like old school video games or, or, or certain kinds of music but it's almost like it's not it's not the romanticism of the past that was all about the nature and the trees it's almost the opposite direction it's about old technology um do you think that your work is kind of inspired by that or <laughs> sorry I was just I was just curious I thought I'd ask because I noticed you seem to have you seem to dabble in that a little bit 
Uh, I mean, yeah, I think like for a lot of people, kind of nostalgia is like a little bit of derogatory term. Like <laughs> it's not, it shouldn't be pejorative. It's just like people when like you're an artist and you're creating things, you're obviously like reflecting back your like knowledge and experience. And so for people of my generation who are like, you know, the Nintendo generation, we grew up on those pieces of technology. So it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily nostalgia. It's just reflective of your upbringing and like the things that were important to you as a kid or the, the way your art culture is reflected through the world. So it's just like, using those dated pieces of technology isn't necessarily like could be interpreted as nostalgia but it's not like reveling and trying to just like wallow in the good times of the past but rather it's like using these things that you were brought up on as like as touch points for your creative work i did have one more more question before we kind of kind of end the interview um so i've seen online that you have a cat and i was curious who is this cat what's their yeah, name two, two guys Ooh, two guys, two cats. That's even more it's exciting. Bartle, we got Bartlebooth and Quagmire. Bartlebooth. Both literary names. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, that's so great. <laughs> Bartlebooth uh, comes from a Georges Perec novel, Life, Life for User's Manual. It's like a character in that. He makes paintings, then turns them into the jigsaw puzzles, and then finishes the jigsaw puzzle, and then turns them back into paintings. And then. Uh, Sounds like a literary. Quagmire cat. is from that. <laughs> And Quagmire this is the the side characters from the Lemony Snicket novel. Oh, I love it. See, I was I thought for a second you said Bartleby and I was like, interesting. That's this very literary. <laughs> well, yeah. Bartlebooth is from the it's a portmanteau of two literary characters. So it's Bartleby and Barna Booth, and they correct kind of put them together. So Brilliant. based on Bartleby. Brilliant. I, I enjoy this very <laughs> much so. Um I had to ask. I had to ask. All right. Well, I think that will conclude our interview. It was so nice chatting with you today. Thank you so much. Um, if anyone is interested, Absolutely. You can check out Shed Books. That would be awesome. If you want to buy another novel, I'm sure that we can have some great recommendations for you <laughs> based on the show. Um, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Absolutely. No, just uh, on if you're on Instagram, go to Shed Bookstore, like at Shed Bookstore. And that's how uh, you'll find it. I try to do a post of like a book a day just kind of something that's in the shed or something someone might be interested in. I do my best to try to keep up on it, but not always. But uh, if you're kind of just want something to check out, check out at Shed Bookstore on Instagram. Uh, check out my artistic work or writing, kevinstimmer.com. All my music and art is up there. So check it out. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This was great. That was Maddie Robinson interviewing Kevin Stebner about his Shed Bookstore in Calgary. If you missed our full interview and you'd like to give it a listen, you can check it out on cjsw.com. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. We love our cliffhanger endings. Here on CJSW. Coming up next, we have a short story written by Carla Corman. Carla Corman is a professional designer who writes poetry and fiction out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Her writing has appeared in the White Wall Review, Slush Pile Magazine, Prairie Fire, Contemporary Verse 2, and other publications. Her short fiction pieces have placed in the Manitoba Writers Guild Contest and the Antagonist Review's Sheldon Curry Fiction Prize. Without further ado, here is Carla Corman's short story, Water Adjacent.
water adjacent. Sit down. Every time I try to do this, I never get it right. That day, the water looked sharp and solid, and the air, by contrast, was cushioned with mist, though it didn't show through in the photographs. The chroma of green in the grass around the lock came through the lens, but neither the soft mist nor the paler hue of the heather survived. Photographs are so dull, and textural color can't be captured on film, I think. So, I'll restructure that day from memory for you. I'll set before you the solidity of the water, the softness of the air, the brightness of the green surrounding the lock, and the heather sliding up the mountains. Sit down, and I'll show you. I imagine that as you take your seat, you bite deep into a stark red apple, your arm encased in your indigo sweater. And when you aim to take the next bite, the red is so sharp against your sleeve, it causes you to stop. I see how where the apple is white were bitten, the skin redder against it, the red more vivid against the blue. I imagine you will take pause. I can see you in the open gallery space, the slatted wood bench beneath you and the white walls surrounding my painting. The black floor is overpolished. Someone in the next room is wearing wooden heeled shoes. The sound echoes. You swim in the slightly humid scent of art all around you. It clings to your skin. Leaning closer, I want to tell you that the lock water is naturally dark and matte with soil. It mirrors nothing and hides everything beneath its surface. The air there is more liquid than the water itself. It floats, suspended in intricate particles. The sharp edges of the island are lit not from the sun, but from the strange chroma of green that the grass holds. It's not the same as home. The green is so different, sweet, sharp and more yellow. I want to show you these things because you weren't there with me. The photos I have of that day are the barest reminder of what it felt like to be there. They form the suggestions of shapes and colors and allude to textures and surface roughness, but they'll never capture the fluidity of the mist or the slate feel of the water when I looked down, I thought if I touched it, it would be nearly rock under my hands. When I look at those images, I still imagine the boat moving through the landscape. I don't want to lose that moment of the time when the mist opened slightly and the sun hardened the surface of the water further. With each application of my brush to the canvas, I think of you. And this image is closer to my memory than the photographs, and it's my memory that I think that matters, not the flat photographic record of the day. Now that you're seated in this gallery, shift over on your bench. I want to sit beside you and speak quietly into your ear when I do this. I think you're still waiting for me with your apple, taking pause, waiting for me to start. I don't know if you've heard the last thing that I've said. Maybe you'll lean in closer. Maybe you'll notice the tips of the heather I placed before you 
and you'll think of the heather tea I brought for you when I came home briefly before I left again, this time for good, and you'll remember the slight smell of sweet hay in the cup that last time we sat down together. My lips were still on the rim when you accused me of varying slights. Then you wanted me to march in a mundane straight line with no form or space around me, always taking the shortest path. Stop painting, you said. It's making you worse. Stop making things more difficult than they need to be. Come home. I grew afraid that the shortest path would be a chokehold, threatening to squeeze the life out of my body. It's not an easy task to translate the complexities of freedom into a short conversation over tea. The silence that day became terrible. You can't pry me open with a crowbar. I think I said it, but I might have not. That's just what I remember. Anyway, it was something similar. But sometimes the mental image I have of you now, a thief trying to force his way in. The day before, I flew back for that week when I called you from Inverness to ask if you would see me. I stood in open space in the hostel kitchen, not alone, and I think the only word you came up with was maybe. I came anyway. I liked you at first because you were unreasonably happy. I never saw you drag on about the things that I did, the same things that kept my eyes down and my voice unsteady. Everything had a grayish tinge back then, a dullness around the edges that blocked the taste of the air and the crispness of the hues. When I walked to school, my head was bent forward under heavy weight, so I examined the ground, each pebble passing by. I thought about each leaf, each vein. I remember the first day we sat outside together, when the day seemed tempered, but the sun burned where it touched. It was fall and the smell of chimney smoke was on the edge of starting. We sat on the sloping school lawn on the stretch before it bent down to meet the river. We were supposed to be somewhere or other, but you convinced me this would be much better. And it was. We baked in the ultraviolet waves and watched everyone go by and you laughed at the film students rolling around a tree locked in barbed wire, filming each other while their hands grazed the trunk and their heads bent back. I said I was sure it wasn't funny. I was sure I could see them becoming wood nymphs. It was like this between us until the noise of clockwork started beside my ears. I could see that clogs and wheels were turning in other people's cheekbones. I felt sliding and disjointed, and I crawled closer to the leaves and veins, out of the autumn air and then under the adjacent river. When you weren't around, I walked down the slope to the riverbank myself. I wanted the feeling of that day to come back, the edge of the sun and smoke, but I couldn't recapture the day. It always danced on the edge of my tongue like a forgotten word. I always had the feeling that the moment had passed. On those days, the edge of the river was always clear and beautiful. I could see straight through to the bottom. I saw each leaf in vain. 
I studied every pebble in minute detail. I still looked down at the ground, and heavy weight pushed me to the horizontal surface under the water. I became constantly afraid that something would happen to you. At night, in my eyes, you died repeatedly, and the next time I saw you, I'd always remember. I think of those nightmares now while I'm here beside you on your bench. My hand is on your back, and my lips at your ear. I can smell the tartness of your apple right before it hits your mouth. I wonder if you hear me yet, whether when your eyes are done with the heather, they will sweep down and see the heavy space that the water occupies below, the matte depth under the prow of the unseen boat. I want you to see the beauty of the darkness folding beneath you. I want you to appreciate hanging on the balance of such a vast volume of space. It was the water that made me think of leaving you behind when I first came to Inverness. It was another day walking along the sloping bank when you weren't there when I first decided to leave home. The air was colder again, the chimney smoke beyond starting, but the sun was further away. I remember seeing clearly to the bottom of the water. The translucent shape of the space looked shallower than it was. And then a shoe went by. It flew past me because the water was faster than I knew. I watched the laces float out to the side and brush the edges of a floating branch. And then Ophelia slid by me on the water. Not Ophelia on a second glance, but a boy dark hair winding over his head, clothes spreading outward, barefoot where the shoe had deserted him. Every detail, every vein had the volume turned up and the old grey haze was sharpened. It didn't leave. It formed hard lines around his face and I grew terrified. When you came to pick me up at the police station, I thought you were angry. You looked so sharp and hard I thought it would no longer to be let to walk along the water. This is where you stop taking pause. I can feel your eyes sliding down the canvas while your hand sinks down with the apple. Do you remember that day I tried to tell you about the water? I couldn't tell if you were listening. It's always so hard to tell with you. As I said, it's not an easy thing to explain the subtleties of freedom over tea. The silence that day became terrible. But I forgot to speak about the green, that strange luminous hue that did not rely on the sun. I can see your frame of perspective from where you sit. You lift your arm back up, the bitten white of the apple bright against the red of its skin, the red stark against the indigo on your arm, your arm cold in front of the green grass at the edge of the lock, the sequence of color spreading outwards. That day on the lake, everything surrounding this green on the shore was so gray that the grass became citrine yellow by comparison. The taste of lemon was somehow on the edge of the air. The grass was ethereal under my feet. It was that same day after walking over that green that I stood on the cracked blue tiles of the hostel floor in the hallway with the shared phone in my hand and I tried to tell you about the water. There was sand on the floor under my feet. 
and I rolled it into arcs and circles when I said, I miss you. I want to know if you'll see me. All you had to say was, maybe. I know I looked away from you when you said you didn't want to come with me that first time I left, and you slowly slid to the edge of the frame. I think you brought out your crowbar when I told you I was going anyways. It was like this between us, after I left for water adjacent. You wanted me to walk on dry land, to stop watching the veins on floating leaves go by, then tried to build me another body out of clockwork to step straight into, leaving my old shell behind, and a new face of cogs and wheels and ticking would follow, and that's when I saw the cogs turning in your eyes. I heard the soft click of metal machinery whenever you spoke, and I still tried to tell you about the depth of water in Inverness, how the surface seemed hard, but the water must be soft underneath, housing monsters and demons under its skin. Wait for me. I can see you're getting restless now. Wait for me before you go. Let me tell you about the mist. It's one thing to sit behind the window of a stalled train and watch the sharpness of the highland mountains blur under hazes of visible air. It's another thing altogether to breathe in the mist, to feel its moisture on your skin, to move through the floating air and the darkness surrounding with one thin piece of fabric wrapped around you and the dampness seeping through to your skin beneath. When I opened my eyes to you all those years ago, you looked straight at me. For someone who was used to being looked through by everyone, it was terrifying. I was still afraid until the day I played alone in an inch of water, sitting on the ground and letting the leaves go by. You didn't say anything, not one word. You sat down beside me and said a few more on the surface too. They were yellow and orange picked from the ground without a second thought, as though there was not a thing strange with racing leaves alone in the middle of the street. Back then, it was the time before you came armed with the crowbar. I never forgot how we walked in the fog, the days that it was so thick over the trees of the old neighborhood that you would turn around and walk in front of me, arms spread, pretending to cut through it with the sheer strength of your will. This is how I mostly think of you now, walking backward, the fog curving around your flannel shirt, and how you imagine that you pressed the cold air out of my path. I've realized you were waiting for me to grow outward, to leave my dark self behind, to step out of the leaves and water, and stepped towards dry ground where you were solid. Instead, I went back to Inverness, but I didn't sink. The black water held me buoyant. It was so thick, it never let me all the way under. I'm still here, sitting beside you, my hand on your back and my lips at your ear. When I heard that you were coming to Inverness, I spent the time since, waiting. I hope you came just to see me, that you brought me an orange leaf in your pocket. The ones here are so different. 
and have never raised on in just an inch of water. It was one thing to sit alone on the street, under the fog, watching the layers of leaves and veins go by, and it was another thing entirely to breathe in the fog beside you, to move with you through the haze and the darkness surrounding, to feel your hands on the one thin piece of fabric around me, warming my skin beneath. I'm not quite ready to leave just yet. I'm going to stay here for a while. I'll be sitting here in silence beside you. I still wait for you to take another bite of that apple. For those who just tuned in, that was Carla Corman's incredibly lyric story, Water Adjacent. If you missed the full short story, for those who just tuned in, you can check it out on cjsw.com or look it up in the White Wall Review. We love our cliffhanger endings here on CJSW. You are listening to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month on CJSW. Coming up next, we have an interview with Tessa McWatt about her new book, The Snow Line. Stay tuned. is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today I'm speaking with author Tessa Megwatt about her most recent novel, The Snow Line. Welcome, Tessa. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. And so I guess tell me what prompted you to write the novel, The Snow Line. It takes place in India. It takes place in, in, the, um, in the specific place north of Delhi near Dharamsala, which is in the Himalayas, and um, I'd been there a couple of times, and I was really, um, you know, looking. I have some Indian heritage, but not lived experience Indian heritage. So I was, I'm always kind of looking for parts of myself when I when I um, travel, and so I did a little bit of that, and then I I'm interested in this idea of belonging and a character who might go back to some place where she genetically might have some belonging but actually doesn't belong because she hasn't been there her whole life. And so I'm looking I was interested in this feelings of displacement, but the book is also a, very much about sort of colonial the damages of of colonial interventions across the subcontinent and also, you know, sort of ways of looking at as understanding history with the main character and um, you know, the, his privilege as a white man who traveled all across the world in doing dam projects that he didn't really understand the impact of. And I guess tell me about more about him then. His name is Jackson, and what inspired that character for you? Well, he, I'm interested in him because he's a generation of, sort of my parents' generation, um, an old man who um, grew up through a lot of changes and who, as I said earlier, was 
a, a person who is privileged, not like my parents, but a per person who is a white man who is privileged to travel around the world and work around the world. And I was interested in thinking about how, who he was and who he is as a person, a moral person. And this man has a moment uh, that he feels responsible for in the past that he sort of pushed away for his whole life. And so the fact that he's 86 when the book opens and he's just lost his wife, his um, wife has died and he's got his wife's ashes with him in his suitcase as he's at this wedding and he's um, wondering where to, that he might scatter these um, ashes because they lived together in India at one point and long in the past, long ago in the past. And so it's about him kind of reckoning with his past as a man who probably sort of didn't see others in the way that he should have. And, and a, so a man of his generation, a man of his racial background, a man of his privilege. And I was interested in exploring that because we, I, I wanted to examine his humanity. I wanted to find it for myself, really. And what is it about that particular uh, individual that uh, you're trying to reconcile in terms of identity for yourself as a mixed-race person? I'm trying to think about, you know, where people sit in all of the kind of um, all of the positions of coloniality. You know, there are people, um, there are the colonizers and the colonized, and then there are those who somehow feel that they are not causing any harm, but that they do cause harm. So for me, he was someone who believed that he his existence was without harm. And I guess I wanted to examine just about the, the, the fact of his existence as somehow having, and his sort of lack of seeing. He's, he's, a, he's a blind old man, I and mean, he's not literally blind, but he has been blind. So in many ways, he's for me like a King Lear character, you know, someone who reaches a, uh, a point in his life where he realizes that, he's, his, that his privilege is specific and that ultimately he's just a human being. And, and I wanted to look at that. Tell me more about the trip uh, through India. Uh, you said uh, you traveled through India before uh, yourself. And so uh, what about the landscape and the different uh, sites that inspire to be written about? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, there's something very, and it sounds like a cliche, but there's something very awe-inspiring about the Himalayas. You know, they're, they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's magnificent to be in those mountains. And there's also, you know, it, it's a cliche to say that there's a spirituality that um, is attached to that. And so uh, when I was up in the mountains, I, you know, I felt this sense of transcending um, transcending culture in a way because the landscape is so strong. And so I was looking at a place for my three, four very different culturally separated people to go to a place where they, they meet on some other level. They meet in the mountains and, it, and their cultures kind of fall away from each other and they have to deal with each other just as, as um, humans because uh, they, they run into trouble with Jackson and and they have to have compassion for him and so it's it's a it's a book that's quite a bit about compassion and I think the the um, the natural landscape of the Himalayas lends itself to a, a kind of stripping away of some some of the cultural elements of the character 
and sort of bringing them to, down to their basics. I guess there's something about traveling through the mountains. There's the physical aspect, and as you said, there's also the spiritual aspect. And so, I guess how how are you able to convey these aspects of the experience of the Himalayas? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. How how am I able to? Maybe you could ask um, that again. Um, I guess. Um, uh, I guess uh, I was uh, just um, uh, maybe it's not so clear in my own mind as sense, uh, but um, I guess it's you uh, mean how how do the characters are, interact with the yeah how do the characters interact know. with the environment I guess yeah well they are um, all new to it one except Yosh who is the only person who's familiar with it he acts as their kind of guide. And the other characters are kind of experience a kind of awe by being there, and they experience themselves differently. And I think um, they experience each other in a slightly more sort of pure way than they would had had they been in the city. I think the city brings all kinds of sort of baggage to people's interactions, and out in in nature and in the mountains. Some of that is stripped away, so I think that's what I was trying to get at. And I guess, uh, tell me more about your other characters. Uh, you mentioned Yosh, and so tell me um, about him. Yosh, Yosh is the yoga teacher that um, works at the resort where all the three char- three other characters meet him. He is a comes from a very poor background in India and left um, comes from a Dalit class and and left. Um, along uh, five years before and sort of didn't want to be back but he is back to run this tour and so he has a very ambivalent and very um, conflicted relationship with his homeland because he lives in Canada now and um, you know likes the the fact that in some ways his background isn't known to everyone the way it would have been in in India and so um, he's escaping the other character, Monica, who is also Canadian, is escaping because she's um, just lost her job. My character, who's British Indian, is escaping um, because she has to make a big decision in her life regarding her relationship. And Jackson is escaping because he's just lost his wife. So everyone sort of is outside of their normal circumstances and they don't belong, but they don't belong together um they they do that unbelonging as a as a group <laughs> so it's a it's a kind of group of misfits that have been thrown together in at a wedding which is supposed to really be about you know un, union and 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 belonging but for them they experience the opposite of that and i guess uh, what is it about the experience of traveling that allows a one to find oneself when uh, as opposed to living your daily life in your um, like daily life of working and going to classes and all these other things, mundane things versus going on a trip. Yeah, I don't know. There is something magical about traveling, though. To get out of yourself and to get out of that mundane thing, I think instantly we start to see that our lives are potentially very small, and that and yet we, the world is the world is big. <laughs> 
And so um, I think it allows us to sort of face things that busyness doesn't allow. You know, I think we, I think daily life is just a big grind for most of us. And, and so to have that privilege really to, to get out of that life and to have some space to be in the world without work, I think is a really special thing to experience. And so how do you create the dialogue between the different characters? Does uh, writing for the stage help you write for in a novel form as well? Yeah, definitely. I'm not very, I, I never, I've never felt very confident with dialogue. I have friends who write for the stage and who are just drops out of them so beautifully, and it's very hard work for me. Um, so, um, and I, and the work that I do for the stage is, is libretto, and, and so it's not purely dramatic. And I, I, w- I would like to do more dramatic writing because it is such a wonderful way of learning. And I've, I've also written a screenplay that hasn't been produced, but it's, just writing it, you know, it screenplay really forces you to only show what's there. You know, you can't comment. And so it's really a great way to learn the economy of language and the economy of, of action and also dialogue. Last time I saw you was through the online event uh, held through WordFest, your conversation with Eternity Mantis. And so I guess uh, oh, how, yeah. how do your, your two most recent works, Shame on Me, as well as The Snow Line, how are they in dialogue with each other with them being published to, so close together? Yeah, um, I think that's true. They are in dialogue with each other. And I think they are about a kind of experiment. Both of them are experiments in uh, kind of questioning what identity is and questioning how we identify and how much of our identity is national, how much of our identity is racial, how much of it is something else that we don't necessarily even talk about. And so they're both in dialogue around that. One is a character who's mixed race, uh, but in a, a very different kind of circ- social circumstance in, and, and then being in India. And then the other is, you know, me. It's a, it's a, um, a memoir, so it's a very different way of looking at this question of belonging. But they're both about belonging, I think, very much, or unbelonging, as I like to call it, because I think they both are looking at how some of the traditional ways in which we claim that belonging happens are not necessarily pertinent for some people. And are not necessarily healthy in a way for some people. You know, if we talk about belonging to a nation state or a class or a gender or a family or an occupation, an ethnicity or religion, or, you know, even a team, <laughs> they all have all of those belongings have ideologies that define what you say you belong to. And so in some ways, I think that um, a kind of unbelonging might be a m- much more potent way of existing, a way of existing outside that. And those books, examine that access you know how how we belong and what it what it means for us thank you very much uh, tessa mcwatt for your time today i've enjoyed this conversation i know it's uh, m- there may be some difficult questions and so uh, uh, hopefully um, i'll be able to talk to you again sometimes again okay great it was my pleasure okay thank you okay bye bye 
For those who just tuned in, that was Jenny Kwong interviewing Tessa McWatt about her new book. Guyanese-born Canadian writer Tessa McWatt is the author of six novels and two books for young people. Her fiction has been nominated for the Governor General's Award, the City of Toronto Book Awards, and the OCM Bocas Prize. If you'd like to hear the whole interview again, you can always check it out on cjsw.com at Writer's Block. Without further ado, this will conclude our February 2022 episode of Writer's Block. Whether you've been listening the whole hour or you've just tuned in, we'd like to thank you for tuning in tonight. If you would like to get involved with this podcast, reach out to us at cjsw.writers at gmail.com. To close off this episode of Writer's Block, we have one final bonus literary segment. Thanks for listening! At, at present, there is no CCTV inside anybody's head. So when you read a book, I read a book, it is absolutely private. And we're in a dialogue, a conversation. Things are happening, things are changing. It looks like, you know, what are we doing? We're just sitting there reading a book, but it is exploding in your head and they can't control that. <laughs> I love that. Um, of course it will change, but when we read a book, it is extending and expanding who we are and what we know. It's not simply knowledge as in information. It's not, oh, I read a book about the Roman Empire. Now I know everything about the Roman Empire. That's information. The thing with fiction, with poetry, with philosophy, with political essays is it's more than information. It's giving us a way of thinking about the world. Um, it's making our brain sharper, smarter. No, it's not just data. Um, which is also important as everything in the world is being reduced to or turned into data. You know, data is the new gold, it's the new oil. Everything that can be known about us is being known by the big companies and we should try perhaps not to let that happen. You know, some days I just leave my phone at home just to annoy them so they can't find me. That was a segment from an interview with English writer Jeanette Winterson, recorded in 2020. In the past, we have focused on stream-of-consciousness poetry, as well as interesting theatre, but we haven't talked about fiction yet. So let's get started. If I had to talk about the one short story collection that has influenced me the most, it would be The World and Other Places by Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette Winterson is known far and wide for her creative writing and her novels, which have won multiple literary awards. She rose to fame with her first book, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, and has continued to publish bestsellers to date. But when I think of Jeanette Winterson, I think of her short story collection, The World and Other Places. I picked up The World and Other Places one year when I was traveling. I was moving through British Columbia on my own and I needed something to read. The cover of The World in Other Places shows a young boy playing with a model airplane. Likewise, her collection of short stories is very much like a model airplane. You can go anywhere with them and they can take you anywhere as well, but you have to use your imagination. 
Yet, if I had to make a quick gut decision, I would say the most interesting aspect of the world in other places isn't the world, but it's the other places that Winterson showcases. In one story, you are transported to a world where sleeping is dirty, unhygienic, wasteful, and disrespectful to others. While the concept of the short story is interesting, ironically, it's so surreal that the story where nobody sleeps reads almost like a lucid dream. Other stories focus on pet puppies that will break your heart, giant houses where rooms go missing, and everything in between. Yet if I had to pick my favorite short story from the collection, it would be Orion. Orion is a retelling of the myth of Orion, but from the perspective of Artemis instead. In this story, Orion attacks Artemis, and after he does that, she gets her revenge with a scorpion. After Orion passes, the gods take pity on him and place him in the sky. We all know this myth, of course. I mean, everyone has seen the three bright stars that mark Orion's belt. But if you read Jeanette Winterson's short story, you notice something that you haven't noticed before. See, most short story collections will mark time passing with three little asterisks at the bottom of a page. Between every section, there's always a couple asterisks marking the difference between chapters, ideas, or lifetimes. What is so fascinating about Winterson's short story Orion is that even though it's not marked by Orion's presence or his narration, one section of the short story includes the punctuation of the three asterisks at the bottom of the page. Now, in any other short story, this wouldn't be interesting. I mean, everyone knows that's how you break up a short story where you change a setting or a character. But in this one, it's different. Even though Orion isn't present in the story in a typical way, in a technical way, the punctuation of the three asterisks or three stars signifies Orion's belt. So with this retelling of Orion, there's a lot more than first meets the eye. Yes, Artemis gets to kill Orion, but in a way, by retelling the story from a female point of view, Jeanette Winterson also kills Orion. Or, more accurately, perhaps just the myth of Orion, and places him on the page. In this way, Jeanette Winterson takes the story of Orion and makes it one of female empowerment, takes a myth that's male and makes it more female-led. As in this story, the page is her sky now.